Section 13 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7, The Years of Solace, Part 1. Peace and leisure, which had known Frederick so little during the first thirty-five years of his life, and which after a brief sojourn were to know him no more, now came to him for the space of four years. They were spent in the pursuit of those duties for which nature had so eminently fitted him, the work of an enlightened despot ruling for the good of his people and to his own glory and honor. It was not Germany that he chose for his home during these years. Her skies were too leaden, her people too rude, her princes too powerful and turbulent. In the south was the land of his mother, the land of his birth and his adoption. Here poetry and romance could flourish under the sunny skies, here the people were less slow of mind, here there was more scope for a monarch whose delight was in culture and learning and luxury, and whose spirit could brook no power within his realm that might rival or confine his own. It is good then to be able to turn aside from the contemplation of his strife with the papacy, and to see him as he passed the happiest years of his life on the western shores of his beloved kingdom, now governing his realm with a firm and wise hand, issuing just laws and repressing evil with the rigor so necessary in medieval times, now cultivating all the gentler arts of learning and elegance, maintaining undimmed the flame of his intellect, while indulging the senses in voluptuous dalliance spreading abroad such a light of splendor and refinement as to foreshadow in his person the glories of that renaissance which was yet to tarry for two centuries and more it is to the sterner aspect of frederick's rule during these years that we must first give our attention he had already before his crusade spent eight years in his kingdom of sicily but his energies during that period had been occupied rather with the reconstruction than innovation. Disturbed by the continual calls of the papacy to fulfill his vows, he had been able to do little more than remedy the mischief which the anarchy that had reigned since the death of his maternal grandfather had wrought. He was now able to devote himself to the higher organization of the state, and the first step in this direction was the compilation of a new code of laws. The existing law of the kingdom was a confused medley of conflicting customs. Romans, Greeks, Goths, Lombards, Normans, and Germans had left their mark upon its jurisprudence. Jews and Saracens had their usages. The church had its private jurisdiction, based upon the canon law. Frederick set himself the task of substituting this chaos by a universal code which should embrace all that was best of the old and all the improvements which he and his counsellors could devise. The keynote of the new system was the substitution of royal supremacy for private privilege. The nobles were no longer to have the right of judging their vassals. The churchmen who offended against the law of the land must submit themselves to the justice of the temporal courts. The towns could no longer appoint their own magistrates to interpret the laws they chose. In every town and district, the royal courts were erected, and the royal officials administered the law of the king. These officials were always strangers to the neighborhood in which they exercised their functions, 
they must have no personal interests or prejudices to influence their decisions. The meanest among these magistrates was secure against the oppression of the powerful or the slander of the discontented. Be not afraid of abuse, was Frederick's exhortation, so long as you commend yourself to us, since our highness looks to works, not to words. At the same time, an official who misused his power was subject to the severest penalties. Unjust sentences, declared the royal lawgiver, cannot be too severely punished, since otherwise the path of truth will be darkened and the oppression of the just will prevail. We condemn to death those judges who have given unjust sentences from any motive. Their goods, especially if they have sinned in capital causes, are confiscated. If any have erred through ignorance, they may thank their own folly in assuming the office of judge. With the help of such encouragements and warnings, an impartial justice was ensured. Frederick himself frequently lost cases in the common courts of the realm. It is impossible in limited space to give even a summary of the comprehensive code of this medieval Justinian. From a mass of civil and criminal measures, we can only select such as are of special interest and serve to illustrate the spirit of the whole. The profession of advocacy, for instance, was subjected to regulations which, however irksome they might be to its members, were certainly for the general good. All would-be advocates must acquit themselves creditably in an examination before a judicial bench, and must take an oath that in the course of their practice they would allege nothing contrary to their conscience, nor accept the advocacy of any cause which they knew to be evil. The fees they might exact from their clients were fixed by the presiding judges. A notable clause enacted that widows and orphans and the poor should receive free legal assistance at the expense of the state. The dignity of the law was upheld by the enforcing of almost complete silence in the courts. The judge was bound to give his decision in every case within a period of three days. Bail was now allowed for the first time, except in cases of obvious guilt or high treason. False accusers were fined one-sixth of their goods, and feudal litigation was discouraged by similar methods, though women in this respect were treated leniently. In spite of his oriental habits, Frederick's public attitude toward women earned him the gratitude of the sex. The law which debarred women from succession to estates was first annulled by him the irrational and superstitious system of trial by ordeal was forbidden by the new code. Trial by combat was also abolished, except in cases of poisoning and high treason, and in these it was discouraged by transferring the choice of weapons from challenger to challenged, and by the condemnation to death of the accuser of high treason if he was defeated in the fight that he had provoked. The employment of torture was also strictly limited. It was henceforth only to be used as a last resource in charges of murder against persons of notoriously bad repute. The evil of private war, so cherished and abused an element of feudalism, was now sternly repressed. The offender, however high his position, was beheaded. The custom of carrying weapons so general in other countries for many centuries to come was henceforth only allowed to courtiers, to knights and burghers on their travels, and to the royal officials in the pursuit of their duties. 
the occasions when a man might justifiably take the law into his own hands were limited in much the same manner as in modern England. An attack upon life or property might be forcibly repelled, but might not be privately avenged afterwards. The law must be allowed to deal with the offender, except in cases of self-defense. A burglar might be slain, but must first be given the opportunity to surrender peaceably. The persons of women, even of the lowest prostitutes, were protected by the infliction of the severest punishments on the ravisher. Anyone who was within hearing when an outrage was being perpetrated, and who did not respond to the woman's cries for assistance, was heavily fined. The ravisher incurred the sentence of death, or more frequently the appropriate mutilation. At the same time the law recognized that man is not always the oppressor, and the woman who falsely accused a man of rape, and thereby exposed him to the terrible penalty, was herself condemned to death. The convicted procuress had her nose cut off, was branded on the face, and flogged. The man who connived at the adultery of his wife was scourged. A husband might slay a man whom he caught in the act of adultery with his wife, but the deed must be done in hot blood. He must have recourse to the law unless he actually witnessed his dishonor and avenged it immediately. The sentence of death was necessarily a frequent one in a country which had passed through so long a period of disorder, though Frederick removed it in many instances. It was still inflicted on coiners, incendiaries, destroyers of wills, and compounders of fatal love potions. Mutilation was a frequent punishment, blasphemers lost their tongues, perjurers and robbers of corpses were deprived of their hands. Such a code may seem barbarous enough, but it was considerably less severe than the general character of the laws it replaced, and the state of the country rendered any more remarkable alleviation of penalties impossible. Moreover, it compares favorably with our own law of even two centuries ago. Frederick made a determined effort to check the rapid progress of heresy throughout his dominions. He had already issued stringent edicts on this subject at his coronation, and now increased the severity of the penalties. It is not likely that he was inspired by religious motives in this policy, for his own beliefs were regarded with great suspicion by the ecclesiastics. But a freedom of thought that might be permitted in himself and his court became dangerous when shared by the common people. Unorthodox views on religion were too often accompanied by unorthodox views on all established systems and institutions, and Frederick realized that the growth of heresy was a menace to the security of the temporal as well as the spiritual power. Of other religions he was tolerant beyond his day. Greeks, Jews, and Saracens throughout his kingdom might worship as they pleased. Gregory the Ninth, adopting the graceful pose of protector of the poor as a cloak wherewith to cover his antagonism to Frederick, constantly accused him of oppressing his subjects with grievous taxation. It is significant, however, that the common people upon whom the burden of taxation would naturally fall most heavily were the most loyal portion of the community. The nobles, stripped of many of their privileges and curbed in their license, might revolt against him. The higher ecclesiastics, deprived of their immunity from all obligations to the state, and rendered amenable to the common law of the land, might be bitterly hostile. But the general mass of the people, 
burghers and peasants alike, realized that they were singularly happy in their king. It is true that the taxation was heavy and increased in severity year by year, as the emperor became more deeply involved in his mortal combat with the papacy, yet he did everything to mitigate the burden which the antagonism of the popes imposed upon his people. The royal officials were restrained from illegal extortion. The merchant might trade in peace and security, and the tiller of the soil might reap his harvest undisturbed by the private wars of the barons and free from their oppression. In times of scarcity the taxes were lightened as far as possible, and the poorer districts were assessed less heavily than flourishing towns and provinces. Commerce was stimulated not only by internal peace and improved and standardized coinage, but by wise regulation and encouragement. Freedom of exchange was established between the various provinces. Fairs and markets were increased and organized. Desirable immigrants were attracted by the remission of taxation for ten years from their arrival to introduce new industries or to cultivate neglected lands. Commercial treaties were formed with Venice, Asia, Genoa, Greece, and Africa. Frederick himself set the example of enterprise, and the royal merchant ships sailed to Syria, Egypt, and the East. Even India was visited by his factors. Agriculture was fostered by similar methods. Waste districts were planted with corn and vines. Model farms were established on the royal estates where the peasants might learn the effect of intelligent husbandry. The royal stud farms improved the strain of horses and cattle throughout the countryside. Serfdom was abolished on all the royal domains and gradually suppressed throughout the kingdom. No measure was neglected that might increase the resources of his realm and contribute to the prosperity of his people. The glory of rulers, he was wont to declare, is the safe and comfortable state of their subjects. Frederick was the first monarch in medieval Europe to summon the Third Estate to a parliament. Representatives from the towns of his kingdom were called twice a year to assemble together for the weal of the kingdom and the general advantage of the state. It is unlikely that this assembly had any real authority, and its chief function was probably the adjustment of taxation. The royal writ contains no invitation to assist in legislation. Send your messengers, it ran, to see the serenity of our face on your behalf, and to bring you back our will. It was, however, undoubtedly a first step in the direction of popular representation, and it is more than probable that Simon de Montfort, who visited the imperial court, was inspired by this example when, some thirty years later, he summoned the famous Parliament of Westminster. End of Section 13